Well, let's see. Let's see if I am. It all depends on the quality of the stand. There's probably a spiritual uh, message in that for us. So on the next trick. Okay. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, I'm having trouble with the stand. <laughs> it just went down again, for those listening on the podcast. This is a much better visual. You need to be here, really. Um, no, no, I can't be having that. Uh, very good morning to you all. Last week brought us to the end of, uh, of our first series on Exodus. I do promise there will be another one. Um, like they say with the trains, there'll be another one along later. And we sort of alighted uh, our, our, our station, the uh, terminus for now of the Exodus Express, was Mount Sinai, where God made a new covenant with Israel. Now, this was a covenant exactly of the same kind that local kings at the time used to make with their people, or overlords used to make with their people. And it began to outline the legal system that the Israelites were to live by in their new kingdom. This was a spectacular event to look at if you were uh, in the Sinai Plain watching. Very much looked like a a volcanic eruption. So sort of cloud and fire and uh, lightning and earthquakes and rumblings and stuff like that. As God came down on the top of the mountain and Moses went up from below uh, to the mountaintop to meet with him. And it was ground-shaking in socio-political terms too as God was transforming Israel from a straggling disorganized tribe united only by their heredity and by the accident of what had just happened to them in slavery uh, in Egypt, transformed them from that to uh, a nation, united by a single purpose, a single set of laws and values, and above all, by one God whom they worshipped. And with God as their overlord, this couldn't just be any other nation, uh, a nation just like any other. In chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God states very clearly what is to be their their driving force, their core identity in the newly formed state. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a particular treasure to me from among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. Now, that priestly role makes Israel, number one, God's representative to all the other nations, and number two, the representative of every nation before God. And I leave you to judge for yourselves how effectively they carried out that purpose up to the coming of Jesus. Not great, I think you'll agree. But the good thing is that our God is faithful even when we are not. And in his Son... Born a Jew, born into the nation of Israel, born into the very family of the kings of Israel, we see a fresh revelation of this very same purpose, representing God to man and man to God. We remembered last week how at Sinai, the first Pentecost, God gave the law and formed his people into a nation to represent him on the earth. And this also became the festival of the harvest and fruitfulness. And we compared that to the second Pentecost in Acts 2, where God gave the Spirit and formed his people into a church to represent him on the earth. 
an event also redolent of fruitfulness. And one of the passages in Scripture that speaks the most clearly about this purpose of the Holy Spirit coming is to be found towards the end of John's Gospel in the great Last Supper sermon and prayer of Jesus. In it we find represented again and again that great guiding principle of love God, love your neighbour. And that in its simplest form is the very bedrock of God's original purpose for Israel as his priestly kingdom. Love God, love your neighbour. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus quite seriously offers that, that simple expression, as the very basis of the whole of the law and the prophets, i.e. the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible as Jewish people knew it at the time. So it seems highly appropriate to me, as we, as we get off the Exodus Express together at Mount Sinai, to pause and consider the way that God wants to form his people together. God has always wanted his people to reach out to the entire world and help all peoples to make connections with him. That is a given. But even in the all-too-brief look that we had last week at the Ten Commandments, it soon became apparent that this is primarily to be achieved by our becoming an exemplary community of worship and of love. So this is a really good time to meditate on some of the one another's that we find all over the New Testament. It would probably take about a year to do an exhaustive treatment of all the things that we're instructed to do to each other and for each other and not to do to each other as citizens of the kingdom of God. And please feel free to look them all up. It's a really interesting uh, concordance study. Or if you've got an electronic Bible on your phone, it'll be easy to search. Just search for one another. So please feel free to read them all and give yourselves marks out of ten and then discuss in your home group how to improve. Um, Over these next uh, three sermons, including the one today, we're just going to take three key one another passages. John 15, Romans 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's begin today by reading John 15, verses 1 to 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Well, just a little dot of context. John's gospel is 21 chapters long, but it squeezes most of the Jesus story, the story of Jesus' three-year public ministry, into the first 12 chapters of the 21. And the last four chapters tell the story of of, of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And in between those two great acts of the play, as it were, where all the action takes place, John concentrates for five whole chapters on a very different act too. Just the teaching and prayer of Jesus on one single occasion at the Last Supper. It's reckoned that by the time John wrote his gospel, the other three were already well known in the Christian church. So he was writing more to fill in the gaps than to give us a complete standalone account of the facts of Jesus' life. The early writer Eusebius says... The facts already being well known, John wrote a, the facts already being well known, John wrote a spiritual gospel. So, for example, we find in chapters 13 and 17, as he describes the Last Supper, that John expects us to know already about the institution of communion. So he doesn't bother to mention it. This sort of central thing in the life of the church, and he doesn't bother to mention it. Instead, he concentrates on things that the other writers didn't find time for in their gospel accounts. Namely, the washing of the disciples' feet and the long sermon and prayer that Jesus delivered before going out to be arrested. And chapter 15 calls into the middle, uh, falls into the middle of this section. And for our purposes today, it probably gives us sufficient context just to point out the three principal themes of these chapters. First, Jesus says, I am leaving you. Then he says, but you are to continue my work, as if I wasn't there. And thirdly, in a way I will be there, because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to empower you to do the work. So I'm going, you're to continue, the Holy Spirit will come and help. The passage we just read is part of a turning point teaching of Jesus. Now that he's about to die, he wants his disciples to get used to this idea of ministering in his place, in his power, in his authority, but experiencing his presence only through his Holy Spirit. Our particular part in chapter 15 is in fact, um, the the bit we've studied, is, is in fact something of a seamless garment. And dividing it up neatly as I'm about to do into four pieces is a distinctly artificial exercise. You'll very soon notice that the same points are stressed over and over again in different plates, you know, you're jumping about um, throughout the passage. But in order to take it in four bite-sized chunks, let's treat verses 1 to 5a as introducing the image of the vine and its branches. Then the next bit down to verse 7 as a warning to remain in the vine. 
Then verses 8 to 11 as explaining what brings glory to God and joy to us. And verses 12 to 17 as a reminder that the way of love is a command, not a suggestion. So number one, the vine and the branches. The disciples are quite used by now to Jesus comparing God's kingdom to various random things in parables. But the first section of this reading introduces a startling new image. Jesus, whom they already revere as their rabbi and expect to become king someday soon, suddenly says, I am a vine. Now, the effect of this is somewhat lost on us who who have lived all our lives in a vine-free country and regard um, the image as something from far away and long ago. It's easy for us, I think, especially if we first heard this story in some great stone mausoleum surrounded by the rainbow colours of stained glass and all that, to, uh, to slip straight into decode the metaphor mode. But for the disciples, it would be more like me standing up here one Sunday and saying, I am a motorbike. Reminds me of the joke, so somewhat dated now, about CJD or mad cow disease. Anyone remember the mad cow disease scare? Well, the story goes that cow A is grazing in the field next to cow B and says, so what do you think about this mad cow disease then? And cow B says, doesn't affect me, I'm a, motor, I'm a helicopter. <laughs> or a motorbike. Yeah. When Jesus makes these apparently nonsensical statements, like I'm a motorbike, he's trying to shock his hearers into thinking on a different level. He takes a completely ordinary, everyday physical thing and uses it to explain really complicated philosophical concepts. Vines were an everyday object to them. Vines were all over the countryside. A lot of houses had them growing over the door. Everyone had a pretty good idea how they grew. They knew that a vine is is cut back every single year to an ugly, black, dead-looking trunk. And every spring, it would throw out an abundance of fast-growing branches that would have to be tied in and cut back and thinned out heavily to produce the most fruit. And even more shocking than calling himself a vine, though, is where he calls God the vine dresser. Are we really, honestly, to see the creator and sustainer of the whole universe as that kind of sunburnt, little, dusty fellow with hands as gnarled as the vines themselves, toiling away in the vineyard? Well, Jesus says, yes. The Father himself is... He's working constantly, tending the vine. He's hugely, personally invested in seeing the maximum amount of fruit. But notice also the insertion before the word vine of the word true. I am the true vine. And if Jesus is the true vine, there must be such a thing as a false vine. He doesn't explain the term at all, what's a true vine and what's a false. So we are free to interpret it in our own context. It seems to me that in every age, in every culture, there are other competing, apparently life-giving activities, ideologies, organizations, friendships, etc. But we are to regard ourselves as branches of Christ. Not branches of anything else who happen to be Christian. We are branches of Christ. Very like the first commandment we looked at last week, where God outlawed any other gods but him. 
Jesus is definitely claiming our entire allegiance, our entire devotion, our entire attention. Our fitness programs, our study, our social and political activities, our ministry, even our family life, dare I suggest even our church, are all good things, or not, as the case may be, but they are not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. Only he can cause us really to flourish as we are intended to. And even the most active engagement in anything else will only cause us to crash and burn. See verse 6. If we're not fully connected to the vine. However, at the point where verse 2 introduces the uncomfortable subject of pruning, Jesus hasn't even mentioned the fact that we are the branches. He wants us first to accept that God is a diligent vine dresser. It is quite obvious he is going to cut out all the unfruitful branches because that's what vine dressers do. Quite obvious he's going to prune back even the most fruitful branches to encourage them to produce more fruit. That's what vine dressers do. It's a fact. And what he wants is for us to pour our energy into grapes not growth. Only once the disciples really get that point does Jesus reveal that actually they are the branches to be cut back as God wants, even removed altogether if they fail to produce fruit. The English translation doesn't really convey it clearly, but in in the Greek the word for cleaning in verse 3 is the same as that for pruning in verse 2. They just use the same word for both things. So in fact what he's saying is, is, don't worry, you guys have already been pretty brutally pruned by my teaching over the last three, three years. Just look at the difference in your lives and you'll see what I mean. And at that point, it becomes, begins to become clear to them that he means to refer to himself as the life-giving trunk of their lives and them, us, as these subsidiary branches who draw all our sustenance from him. But we are branches of the very same organism. Now, coming back to this familiar passage once more, this time around, uh, the most striking thing I noticed is, is that concept of grapes, not growth. <clears throat> I think it's a, it's a principle that goes directly against a lot of what we find in our Christian subculture. How much of it actually encourages us to invest in personal growth rather than in actual fruitfulness. But like Jerry Maguire in the film shouting, show me the money, Jesus is here shouting, show me the fruit. Not for the first time. Remember, he says, by their fruits shall you know them. So you can tell what kind of person is from the fruit their life produces. Show me the fruit. God is not impressed by our degrees, by our reading, by the size of our church, by our extraordinary giftedness in prophecy, by our devotion in prayer, by the power of our preaching. He wants to see some fruit. And if we want to be fruitful, we have to maintain our vital connection with Jesus. But hang on, Tobes, I hear you cry. What does he mean by fruit? And you are all thinking that, aren't you? There you go. (laughs) At least there's one. I believe the question is best answered with with a concept and a scripture. The concept is simply that of explaining fruit as the seed-bearing, reproductive part that a plant produces quite naturally. 
but it produces it specifically with the purpose that it should eventually ripen, drop off, release its seed, and become a plant in its own right, exactly like the one it sprang from. The branches of the true vine, then, must produce fruit capable of producing more plants exactly like the one they came from, i.e. exactly like Jesus. So the question is, are we producing Christ-like people? And I suggest that's something that we do best as a church rather than as individuals. That is the concept of fruit. The scripture about fruit comes, of course, in Galatians 5, which describes the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And as we read those words, we quickly see that they, they accurately describe Jesus. And I don't think that's any accident. The fruit produces a plant like Jesus. So that's one, the vine and the branches. Two, remaining in the vine, verses 5b to 7. Jesus has mentioned this already, but here he strongly reinforces the idea of remaining in him. If God is the vine dresser constantly looking for and pruning for more fruit in our lives, then we must prioritize our relationship with the vine over every single other thing. But Jesus says we do have a choice in this. We can choose to just drop off. Or perhaps it would be more apposite to say we can just fall off by default due to an unconscious atrophying, an unnoticed drying up of our connection with Jesus. And when we do see some great preacher fall into sin or some former spiritual giant we used to know losing his faith, the underlying reason for that won't be simply a binary choice that he made one day. They didn't suddenly think, oh, shall I press on with Jesus or get off with the organist? They didn't suddenly think, do I really believe all this Jesus stuff? No. Whatever the outward show, if the fact that those questions can even be asked shows that they've withered up on the inside. Now, good people sometimes become so involved in and so exhausted by what they do for Jesus that they neglect their vital connection with him. And as long as their gifting lasts, and it will, they assume that they're okay. But actually the vital union with Jesus has shriveled up and they've become too busy and too success motivated even to notice. Pray for your leaders. Not all Christian growth actually results in fruit. Not all Christian success actually is fruit. So is the fruit of our life genuinely sweet to the vine dresser? Or is it just there to make the branch look good? How do we keep that old sap flowing? The many one another's of the New Testament gives us a lot of hints. And we're going to look at a couple of those in the next two talks. But even in these verses, Jesus gives us some very clear pointers. Verse 5 not only mentions us being in him, but him being in us as well. We need to pray every day to be, be refilled with his Holy Spirit. And then try and spend the day connecting with him constantly, making what we referred to last week as repeated journeys up the mountain and back again to meet with God, to meet with people. Connecting heaven and earth 
Connecting with God, connecting with people that he's put around us. And that's what a kingdom of priests is supposed to do. And that surely, in those interactions, is where the fruit is. And verse 7 gives us another clue. Jesus' words must abide in us. I think that has to mean more than just knowing them off by heart. I don't think it would do us any harm either to pick a key scripture each week, learn it by heart, try and meditate on it for three or four minutes, three or, three or four times a day. That could be uh, an hour, uh, a couple of hours a week that really does change your life, unlike various sort of fitness programs and self-help programs that we come up with. If Jesus' words truly come to dwell in us, verse 7 implies, they will so change the desires of our heart that the second we pray something, God will grant it. Sounds good to me. That's what he did for Jesus. A truly Christ-filled life, full of Jesus' word and Jesus' spirit, and connected through him, with our fellow branches, will be a truly Christ-like life. Number three, what brings glory to God and joy to us? Verses 8 to 11 speak of fulfillment for God and for us. All the nations belong to God, even though we're his particular treasure, as we read in Exodus 19. And eventually God must and will have his way in the whole world. Or he wouldn't be God. But first, this has to happen in our own lives, us whom he has chosen to be his people. I think the uh, ESV, which we read from just now, fudges the issue a little bit in verse 8. A more literal translation indicates that Jesus speaks here of these first apostles, these great men of God, becoming his disciples at some time in the future as they bear fruit and so bring glory to God. That must have been rather a humbling, hurtful thing for them to hear after they'd followed him so faithfully for three years, at enormous cost to themselves in terms, of, uh, in terms of their comfort and safety. So we too, whatever our stage of life and discipleship, shouldn't be afraid to regard ourselves as being engaged in a lifelong learning process where the more we know, the more we know we don't know. We're still engaged in trying to become disciples however good we are already we read in verse two that even the most fruitful branches get pruned by god to make us more fruitful and i think jesus is warming to the same theme again in verses eight and nine where he begins to speak of god's glory and his own and the father's love whatever it feels like when god begins to restrict our growth into areas that we rather fancy invading in fact, his pruning is done in love. It's this great continuum of love from the Father to the Son and from the Son to us. What we have to do is to rest in it, accept it, consciously live in it. But notice how, once again, as at Sinai, abiding in God's love means keeping his commandments. Sometimes we're happy, to, to, uh, we're happy with one side of the covenant, the bit that we receive, you know, God's protection, God's provision, but we don't think too much of the other side where we actually have to do what he says. But in fact, obeying his commandments is not for his benefit, it's for ours. All his commandments are, are constructed in love for our good. Obedience leads, verse 11, to joy for us. 
just as it was the joy of Jesus to obey the will of his Father. We do profess to follow Jesus, don't we? Our flourishing, our fruitfulness, and the complete joy which we would seek diligently if we knew what was good for us, still verse 11, is conditioned above all by the closeness of our discipleship, which means obedience. You could even suggest a link, and I would, between obedience, which surely means curbing our own will to seek God's instead, a link between that and the pruning process that leads to fruitfulness. This teaching again stands in stark opposition to all the self-fulfillment nonsense that the world peddles so relentlessly. But then, when was Jesus ever not countercultural? Four, love is a command, not a suggestion. We just saw how curbing our own will in order to obey Jesus is essential. But what is Jesus actually asking of us? What does he want us to do? Well, here it comes. Couldn't make it any clearer. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is actually a, a reprise of the famous new commandment that he'd given them just a few minutes earlier on in chapter 13, 34. Well, he used exactly the same words, but added a little rider that that would be the way everyone would know we're his disciples, by the way that we love one another. So the distinct element here of an outward evangelistic focus. But once again, just like at Sinai, their principal responsibility towards the outside world was to live right together for all to see, to set an example at a practical, observable level of how life ought to be. And in verse 13, Jesus gives us a strong indication of what true love looks like, love that's not a feeling but a decision. Disney films, rom-coms, just a vast swathe of popular culture all teach us to think about love as something that comes and sweeps us off our feet. Comes from the outside. It takes us by surprise. Verse 30, and it feels wonderful. Verse 13 describes something that couldn't be more different. This is a love that very specifically doesn't feel good at all. It feels like giving up our life. Giving up what we want for the sake of others. And we call those others friends, not because we have any natural affinity with them, but because God wants us to. How much natural affinity do you think Jesus felt for his disciples? Not much. Yet he's about to lay down his life for them at this point, and for us, verse 14, who have determined to do what he commands us. And he brings this little portion of the sermon to an end with a wonderful fourfold encouragement, and it's one that I believe he wants to extend to us today as well. Verse 15, we're really his friends. And we know that because of the way he's fully revealed God's purposes to us. Verse 16, our friendship doesn't depend on our choosing, but on his choosing, which is much more reliable. Still in verse 16, his plan for us, the reason that he's called us, is that we should be massively fruitful in the ways just described, and that our fruit will last. 
Here again, his choosing is more reliable than ours. And just because we don't feel our lives are fruitful doesn't mean that's the way he sees it. In fact, I suggest it's particularly when our lives are being pruned that we feel most unfruitful. But wait for spring. And again, still in verse 16, as we remain in the vine and allow Jesus and his words to dwell in us through obedience, our wills will come into line with his and the Father will give us everything we ask in the name of Jesus. So there's the encouragement and then it finishes with a final reminder just in case we were in any doubt of the central and guiding principle behind the whole thing. I am giving you these commands so that you will love one another. Everything he's just said about the vine and his branches is is vitally important, really helpful. It's life-giving. But his purpose in telling us all this is that we should become that community of love, which is capable of being a light, a beacon of light in a dark world. In the next two talks, we're going to examine um, other aspects of our one-another life together. One of the two of the many of which the Bible has so much to teach us about. But as Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now these things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love.